Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about suicide and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. Again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with someone who has taken their hugely traumatic story of sexual abuse and turned it into a powerful vehicle for helping other men like him find their voice, receive support and heal their pain. Duncan Craig OBE is the founder and CEO of Survivors Manchester. Survivors Manchester is a survivor-focused voluntary sector organisation that aims to create and facilitate safe spaces for male survivors of sexual abuse, rape and sexual exploitation across Greater Manchester, providing access to quality, assured support. Their work is focused on developing ways for individuals to empower themselves to work through personal and sometimes painful issues, guided and supported by their trauma-informed team following the trauma and recovery model. In this episode, we discuss how the charity started, Duncan's role in it, the different projects they work on, and why he was inspired to create it through his own story of sexual abuse. Duncan is a gay man and was sexually abused as a child and later exploited as an older teenager and young adult by a male perpetrator. It took him a long time to realise that what he went through was actually sexual abuse and we discuss the impact that it did or didn't have on his sexuality and how that can be a common issue among victim survivors. We also talk about the concept of shame in disclosure of sexual abuse amongst men, social class and how representations of these stories in popular culture is so important in breaking that stigma down further and showing the public what men like him have gone through and how we can safeguard the next generation. So this is how my conversation with the brilliant Duncan Craig, OBE, went. Duncan Craig, OBE, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to come on. You are doing such incredible work across Greater Manchester and through Survivors Manchester. I'm glad I can give it some love through this podcast. How are you going, mate? How's your Sunday? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on, Freddie. Yeah, stuff's good. It's bright. I think it's going to start raining this afternoon. Typical for Manchester. But, you know, <laughs> typical. Well, people say that, but like everywhere else in the country is just as yeah, rainy. I know. Yeah, London's the same. London's the same. London, <laughs> London was belting in the afternoon, but peeing it down yesterday. So exactly yeah. the same, mate. <laughs> These conversations that I have with people who have gone through abuse are so important for me in in highlighting the diversity of men who have gone through it, mate, but also for my own recovery as well and finding other people with commonalities. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Let's go for it. I came across your work through Survivors Manchester, mate. So let's discuss that to start the pod. How did it start? What was your role in it? And what is your role in it, I should say? And just tell me about some of the really important work you do. So my role in the organisation is I'm the current chief executive of the organisation. I'm also a psychotherapist and I still practice. So I still have a couple of days where I'm actually seeing clients. 
I'm also the founder, and I suppose I say the current chief exec because I absolutely believe that at some point somebody else will be. As a founder of an organization, I often think that there's a moment where the organization's outgrowing you or you're outgrowing the organization and it's time to kind of move on. So I like to talk now about being the current caretaker Mm -hmm. of this, what is now a teenager. So 13 years old it is as of February 2009, but the organization goes right back to 2005, 2006, when I was studying to be a psychotherapist and I was working with a young man in an NHS primary care mental health setting, it was a multidisciplinary team and I was the only therapist or I was a training therapist actually, but I was the only male counsellor psychotherapist on the team. And so I used to get all of these referrals or rather these referrals would come in and I used to get given them to see when somebody had asked for a male. So I was working with this kid, 17 years old he was. Honestly, I think in reflection, he probably shouldn't have been in that aspect of that service. And he started talking about what his uncle had done to him. And as he's talking, I'm feeling something that I've never felt before working with clients. It's really kind of, I suppose like it's like a real visceral sort of sat right in my belly. Like, "Mm, this sounds very familiar. I've finished seeing him and probably over the next kind of six weeks, I started having nightmares where I was recalling what he was saying in the therapy session, but it was me. It was effectively my head on this body, on this experience. And I went to speak to my supervisor, which is my clinical person, and started speaking. And she said something like, how does it feel for you? And I said, well, I've never been abused. And she said, I didn't say you had. All I can describe it as is a tsunami, this tsunami of emotion and pictures and smells and tastes and feelings like this whole tsunami of feeling of senses just washed over me I just broke down crying and at that moment I had a realization of the truth of what I'd experienced as a child from about 11 to about 17 and then later from about 17, 18 to about 21, 22. And I had to, at that point, begin my journey as a survivor. Mm-hmm. And that's where Survivors Manchester started, really. Mm. Let's take you back to 2009 and 2005, six then, because when you started it, and I experienced this when I started Vent in 2017, there was very few organisations purely focused on yeah. men's mental health, let alone male sexual abuse. So yeah. did that scarcity shock you? I imagine it didn't. And and what need was there in Manchester to support these men? Well, I mean, it did shock me, Fred, to be honest with you, because I guess I, in my training, I'd just been told so often about how important it is for people to kind of get hold of their mental health and ineffectively kind of control it rather than it being controlled by the phenomenon or being controlled by somebody else, a doctor, therapist, etc. I was aware that there was not that much for males because 
we only had so many sessions within the NHS that we could work with clients and we would refer people on. And there'd been a couple of times prior to this kid that I was working with, there'd been a couple of times where somebody had said something about sexual abuse and I'd gone trying to look for support services and there kind of was none. So I was a little bit aware of that. But then when it came down to me and in 2006, when I was like, yeah, I really need to kind of deal with something like this. And I went looking across the country for support and recognised there was Survivors UK in London. But essentially, I wasn't in London, so I couldn't go there. There was an organisation that had closed down a couple of years prior in Liverpool, which is not that far from me. But that was it. There was nowhere. And I remember finding two things. First of all, I found Greater Manchester Rape Crisis, rang them, and essentially they couldn't help me because I wasn't female. Their work was with females. But this really lovely woman just ended up chatting to me on the phone. And I guess that was the first time, and she'd said she was a survivor. And that was the first time I'd really sort of spoken to anybody who was the same as me. You know, she was a female survivor, but essentially she was a survivor. And then I found an American website called Male Survivor. And I just thought I I need to do some research on this. So I went reading stuff. I found myself at like two o'clock in the morning on their web chat, talking to other men, but men who were in the States and just finding a little bit of space. And then one individual who was on this web chat said, there's an organization down in Wiltshire and they run these weekends. Why don't you try there? So I plucked up the courage, contacted the organization and then found myself for about two or three years going down to Wiltshire to get my support. And I actually thought this is absolutely bonkers. You know, Manchester for me was kind of this 24 hour city that was the birthplace of so much good music and good culture and good art. And, you know, it's my hometown. Why can I not be helped in my hometown? So it was at that point that I decided as soon as I got better, as soon as I got to a level of stability, that I would start something. And then, you know, 2A, I was kind of knocking on people's doors, asking people to help. And then in 2009, We'd got a meeting together. We'd applied for charity commission status and company status. And then 5th of February, a knock on my door, opened the door. And it was a postman saying, can you sign for this? I signed for it, opened this envelope. And it was a certificate that said, you are officially now a company, not for profit company. And at that point, that's where my life really changed. Mm. You spoke there about disclosure and disclosure to that female survivor and, and, and the person on the phone. And when it comes to disclosure to your friends, one of your best yeah. friends said to you, I always thought it was odd when you talked about your first sexual experiences, but the way you told it, I pushed the concern to one side. So what yeah. happened when you eventually told them what you had gone through and how did that feel? It was, there's an interesting extra bit to it, which is, don't forget that I was training to be a psychotherapist. So every week I was talking about mental health and diagnosis and disclosure. So I was talking about this a lot. So I had effectively, I suppose in some way, I had some practice talking about my experiences. Plus I was was also in therapy too. And it was my therapist that I was with that said you know do you think anybody knows and 
and I was like, hmm, I'm not too sure. And like I said, I went to speak to my best mate, Julian, and said, look, first of all, I said, you know, look, I need to talk to you about something. So when I was younger, I was sexually abused by this man and, you know, it went on for a number of years. And then, you know, after then, when that finished, I was then kind of tricked into being sexually exploited. And I remember him looking at me and saying, I know. And I was like, what do you mean, you know? And he said, we always suspected, we being various different friends over the years, we always suspected there was something not right about what you were saying. So, I mean, I'm far too old for these conversations (laughs) now, but when I was a lot younger, you know, there was that kind of like, oh, when did you lose your virginity? That kind of stuff. I used to joke what I'd say to you now, Freddie, is I used to repackage, <laughs> but I didn't know I was doing that then. So I used to repackage my story in a sort of, I was the one in control. I was the one that had the most amount of power. This person I was having sex with didn't, and therefore it can't have been abused because I was the one in power. Effectively, I was sort of saying this was the victim because I had much more about me than he did. Now I know that's not true. Now I know that was absolutely my brain just kind of keeping me safe. And I remember Julian, like it's like you say, Julian saying, but the way you told it, we just thought it was okay. And the way I told it organically must have been so deep rooted because going back to that moment when in my supervisor's office, really kind of making that first disclosure, as I verbalized it like loudly in front of her, I remember saying, but I can't have been abused because I was 18 and I think he was only a few years older than me. And I remember at that point just seeing his face in like my mind's eye just became really conscious. And I saw his face and I just straight away, I just thought, no, he wasn't. He was like 50, 50, 60. And then I thought, hold on a minute. And again, this, like I say, this tsunami, this flood, I thought I can't have been 18 because I was living in that house. And I moved out of that house when I was 13, 14. And that's when kind of everything came. And I have to say, whilst it was horrible to sort of go through that experience and, you know, feeling a bit stupid in some way. So when Julian kind of was saying, you know, like, oh, yeah, we knew. And another friend sort of said the same thing. I felt a bit daft. I think it was just the biggest relief possible. I've likened it before now with my tongue pressed firmly in my cheek to when you have that big dinner and then you're like, oh, and then you just go to the toilet and you're like, oh, that relief. <laughs> I know just that one like, on the Friday fishing Everybody chips, knows that feeling of like, I feel empty Mm. and but empty in a good way Mm. it was just such a relief Mm. we're going to talk about that in depth a bit more later in the pod mate but you spoke earlier about being one of the few men on that therapy course and i want to talk about male therapists because therapy in general seems to be on the surface a profession which is dominates maybe not the right word but certainly has a larger percentage of women in it Yeah, Yeah, yeah yeah okay and do you think Part of the problem when getting males into therapy is that, you know, stereotypically, of course, and this is not the case in every case, but the men who need support prefer male therapists and women obviously stereotypically tend to be 
or tend to gravitate more towards these caring professions. So, you know, therapy or nursing Mm -hmm. or something like Mm -hmm. that. How do we equalize that gap, do you think? So first of all, I think there's something about patriarchy, misogyny mixed into all of this. So when you start looking at healthcare professionals, what you often get is the caring ones or the roles that are thought about in a more caring way are often, majority of them, are often done by females, whereas the fixing roles, you know, are done by males. So there is far more males who are surgeons and far more females that are nurses. And I think the kind of the misogyny, patriarchy kind of stuff that's in that is about the maternal paternal Because what we're doing is we're still seeing mothers as the caring, fathers as the fixing, you know. So if we if we keep sticking to those gender stereotypes, we're never going to move out of stuff. It's why I always argue that when we talk about toxic masculinity, we're talking about completely the wrong thing. We should be talking about toxic gender norms, because if we break those gender norms, that means we can start recognizing dads as being the care providers Mm. rather than the money providers. And I think if we start thinking about it at the core of society where we get our very early understanding of who does what, I think if if we change that, we begin to change the workforce. And I think there is a complete misnomer about this idea that men want to see male therapists women want to see female therapists actually despite the fact that many organizations in my field many of the sexual violence organizations and domestic violence organizations will say oh no 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 women want to see women and of course of course there are some women who will have a preference just like there are some men who have a preference some black women may want to only see black women Mm -hmm. some gay men will only want to see gay men Mm -hmm. because of lived experience etc of course but the overwhelming majority of people when they go to a professional this really simple answer is they want to see somebody who's just going to help can you help me yeah yeah absolutely Mm. absolutely can you help me and majoritively can you make this go away can you fix me You know, one of the things that I often think again, and this is where we've got to really unpick some of this, one of the common things that men will say within as clients, as patients, as people, the help seekers is, can you fix me? And can we do this in the next? We all want solutions. Men men want solutions, (laughs) don't we? (laughs) Yeah, because we still, you know, it goes back to that gender norm thing for me, because what we're doing is we kind of go in, we want solutions because a solution will get me out of this quicker. Now, absolutely, of course, as soon as I realized that all of my mental health problems, my anxiety, my depression, my self-harming, my suicidal ideation, my, I suppose in the broadest sense of the term, my post-traumatic stress symptoms were rooted in the experiences that I'd had of sexual abuse. Because sexual abuse cuts right to the core of an an individual you know the only thing that hopefully a survivor will ever keep hold of during abuse is their integrity because everything else is taken away Mm. so there's something about getting right back to if I feel like I've lost something 
and then years later I realize what it was that I've lost and I'm feeling all these ick things then I just want this professional site in front of me to take it away as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you? Let's talk more in depth about the work you do at Survivors Manchester. Now, we spoke off air and you rightly state, Duncan, in my opinion, that the mental health impact of sexual abuse is a public health issue. And Absolutely. in 2019, you spoke at a Women's Inequality Select Committee about the mental health of men and boys. Now, mm. 2019 feels an absolute eon ago, a lifetime ago, <laughs> yeah. a different universe, to be honest, in the Marvel way. Yeah. So tell me what you said and, and why you felt this was important. So first of all, you know, I think those of us that can should. I'm certainly not setting myself up to be nailed to the cross or nailing myself to the cross as any kind of martyr, but I have been lucky enough to have either made myself a platform or been given a platform to talk about various different things. So as soon as I was invited to a select committee to talk about this issue, I knew that I had to do it. My key reason for doing it, aside from the, because I have a platform I should, was because In this country and across most of what we now think about as high income countries, so we used to call them kind of Western countries, but they're not all in the West. So you're talking about kind of many many countries within Europe, Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So they have a policy, a strategy called VOG, Violence Against Women and Girls. And what we're looking at in that is the disproportionate amount of women who are killed in the home by their partner, the amount of women that undergo through forced marriage, female genital mutilation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. domestic abuse, sexual violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've been around Vogue since 2008, 2009 when it first started, so I am very well versed with it. I sit on a number of government working groups and panels and task and finish groups dealing with Vogue. So I am a big supporter of Vogue. And I think we do have to tackle the violence against women and girls in this country. The microaggressions, I think absolutely we do need to deal with that. And, you know, the majority of those experiences are at the hands of men. And as as a man, I need to step up to the plate. I need to start calling out my fellow men, my brothers, to say, you know, that's not okay. Why do you think that's okay? So I'm very okay with that. However, and this is a big however, violence against women and girls doesn't include me. And nor should it, because I'm not a girl, I'm not a woman, I'm a man. And there is something that when they started talking about the Women and Equality Select Committee, And they were talking about sexual violence and mental health. And this moment came up where they decided to talk about boys and men. I knew I had to do Mm -hmm. something. The main key message that I delivered in those sessions were, why am I referred to as a victim of violence against women and girls? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Or a, ma- so, or a male victim of domestic abuse, by the way. That seems to be it, in that definition now. Exactly, yeah. Weird. So if you're a victim, if you're a man who's a victim of any kind of sexual violence, domestic violence, forced marriage, so-called on a base killing, you are seen as a male victim of a crime that is thought about and categorized as (laughs) violence against women and girls. Now, I didn't really do that well at school. Now, even I know that just doesn't, that's not even English. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I knew that I had to say something because 
I don't know about you, Freddie, but I know so many men and it doesn't matter what somebody's sexual orientation is in the today. Yes. When they're going through sexual abuse and when they recognize what's happened to them, there's an attack on the very fabric of your maleness. Yes. And we question it. We question this ridiculous idea that men are supposed to be strong and we're supposed to be the ones that are cutting down the trees to get to the princess and all that rubbish. I had this moment where I was just, enough is enough now. I've already spent years trying to work out who I am, trying to find a sense of making sure that that boy who was abused that grew up to be the man that I am today has a really good sense of himself and recognises and knows that nobody's going to put his hands on him because nobody gets to do that because my body's my body. And yet here is a policy and a whole load of MPs telling me that in some way I'm not seen, in some way I'm not seen as a man I'm seen as a victim of violence against women and girls. And I just had to throw that out there and I had to keep saying that. And it was lifted by the Commons Select Committee and they used a tiny little bit of my speech, a tiny little bit of my statement throughout their social media, which I was really pleased about. In 2022, this committee restarted and you were asked to participate in that follow-up work. So tell me the work that's happened since and your perspective on it. So since then, there's been another kind of follow-up. Select committees are interesting because then, because of the pandemic, things stopped, but also there'd been a kind of a change in cabinet and various different people and, you know, elections, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of changed. So the original membership still had to answer questions. And I was asked to resubmit a kind of an update which I did. I resubmitted an update fairly recently, actually a couple of months ago in writing. And then very recently, maybe just a couple of weeks ago, there was two ministers, two parliamentary undersecretaries, so not the Secretary of State, but the ones under them, that sort of were back at the Select Committee with a new panel, a new chair. Caroline Noakes MP is the, the chair now. It used to be Maria Miller. And in the select committee, one of the minister for mental health and I think safeguarding, but mental health was her main portfolio. She was asked by a Labour MP in the select committee, what did she think the government needed to do? Or was the government doing enough for boys and men affected by sexual violence? All of the select committee panel and the people that are what they call giving evidence, mm-hmm. so the people that are being asked questions, are given all of the information of the previous episode, so to speak. And her response, which is, you know, it's on Twitter, you can log on to Parliament and see it. Her response was essentially, oh, I'm not too sure because I don't have anything to do with this. I mean, my jaw hit the floor because... I've got a minister live in a select committee room being beamed across the world through the internet who is in charge of mental health at a select committee about the mental health of boys and men. That's that's the whole purpose of this meeting, being asked about sexual violence and her response was, 
I'm not too sure about this. She then went on to talk about women and girls because she was involved in the domestic abuse bill. And then she went on to, I think she must have caught herself what she was saying. So then she brought it back to talking about men and boys and then talked for about five minutes about men in sheds and how wonderful men in sheds are in tackling loneliness in older men, which is absolutely brilliant. Men in sheds is a fantastic. I wish I had come up with it because it's such a brilliant project. But it's tackling isolation in males in, you know, so for me, I'm I'm kind of a bit like, well, you haven't even answered the question. So I've written to the committee. I've written to the MPs. There was also another minister with her who answered a similar thing. So he's a minister in Department of Education and Families. And so he's children's minister. The comment that he made was, yeah, it's not part of my department, that, which I was astonished at as well. The sexual abuse of children isn't your department when you're the children's minister. I mean, that That's doesn't very make worrying. any sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, so I've written to them and I'm st- I'm waiting to hear. Mm. And I know that, you know, I, I talk about things very openly. You know, I'm the first person to criticise ministers, but I'm the first person when they've done something wrong. And I'm the first person to compliment when they've done something right, because I think that's fair. And I think as a, you know, as a chief exec of an organisation, the people that use our service, that whenever I'm doing something, people get to criticise me and flipping heck, they do, you know, but that's the position that I'm in. And that's the position that ministers are in as well. And we should be holding their feet to the flames. Mm. You spoke off air to me, Dunk, about a trauma scale called the IESR, which the NHS uses and you use at the charity. Can you just yeah. explain to the listeners how that scale works and the men who fall under this scale who come into yeah. Survivors Manchester, because it seemed a definitely an important point to put out here. Yeah, so so the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, IAPT, which is a national NHS programme. So effectively, if anybody listening to this now goes to the doctor and they're feeling depressed, uh, anxious, any kind of mental health issue, let's call it for want of a better word, they go to the doctors, the doctor will do various different things. Hopefully they'll put you on, they'll put somebody on the IAP program, which means that you can get access to talking therapies. And then they will also look at medication for anybody that needs medication. During the talking therapy program, there's a set of self-reporting scales. So it's like a questionnaire, but it's been invented by very, very clever people. And it's been tested across the world. And there's a lot of academic research about it and one of the scales is like you say called the IESR which is the stands for the impact of event scale now actually the IESR is being retired and there's a new one being brought in which is exactly the same thing so it sort of makes no difference really the scale goes from zero to 88 and effectively you answer a whole load of questions so one of the questions is in relation to your trauma in relation to the thing that you come into therapy about how often do you try to not think about it tick this box if it's all the time tick this box if it's three or four times a week and you just kind of do that zero to 33 is seen as the lower the score the less likely you are to have ptsd 34 to 88 the higher the score the more likely you are to have ptsd so 33 is kind of what they call the clinical cutoff so there's needs to be some level of you know well this person doesn't need this intervention etc etc and then you know people who 
I mean, I don't know anybody like this, but people who have never experienced any kind of trauma in their life, they're supposed to be around the kind of 15, 16 sort of scale. We ask every single individual who walks through these doors to fill in this form at the first time they meet us. And then we ask them again to do it every so often and we measure it. The highest score you can possibly have is 88. And on average, the overwhelming majority of men that access our support, the score that they have is 78. So what we show in there is a really high level of trauma, a really high level of PTSD. There's two other scores. One of them is around anxiety and one of them is around depression. The anxiety one is 0 to 21. Average scores for men accessing this support are round about 18, 19 out of 21. And then the depression one is about out of 27. Average score is 25. So what we're showing using NHS approved metrics is that the majority of individuals that walk through these doors have high levels of depression, high levels of anxiety, high levels of PTSD. Mm. Now, if anybody says that the impact of sexual abuse, and about 80% of the men that access our support are adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse, rather than people where something's happened last night, that's about 20%. About 85% of the men that access our support are self-identify as straight, as heterosexual. We have uh, about 15% come from the gay, bisexual and trans community. 91% are white British. And we really need to tackle that. We need to do a lot more around diversity. So we're talking the majority are heterosexual, straight, white men, who are anywhere between their kind of 35 to about 55 and they're scoring time and time again high depression, high anxiety, PTSD. Now, anybody wants to have an argument about whether the impact of sexual violence is not a mental health issue and it's not a public health issue, please feel free. I'll give you my number. I've got two more questions left before we move on, mate. The first one is a really powerful point that you made to me off air. And you spoke about how victims, survivors who are abused from threat of violence or in fear of their life confuse compliance with agreement. And this falls under the trope of guilt that survivors feel. I certainly felt it to some degree when I was dealing with my childhood sexual abuse. So tell the listeners why it's so harmful for the victim survivor to believe and to the conversation as well. Mm. Yeah, so somebody said something to me many, many, many years ago that guilt and shame is the hallmark of the victim. And it blew my mind because I guess in some way I always thought the shame that I carried about what had happened to me, or rather at the time, the shame that I carried that I believed because of what I'd done rather than what happened to me Mm. you know because I didn't do anything it's something that happened to me you didn't do anything Fred it was what happened to you you know and I think there's a really important distinction there because shame is the thing that we feel when we believe we've done something wrong 
guilt is the thing we feel when we believe we've done something wrong and we believe that other people will agree and find out yeah exactly exactly so carrying this shame believing in some way shape or form that i done something wrong meant that i had the inability to express it it meant that i i had the inability to be able to share it because i did not want anybody effectively to say anything about how this was my fault to be blamed for it Mm. and we need to move beyond this kind of victim blaming because shame is the thing that keeps us silent Mm. and if we don't tackle it if we don't talk about it if we don't one of the things that i often will talk to clients about so the very first time that i'm speaking to one of the survivors that, that i I'm so honored to be able to work with is I'll say, you know, just want you to know something. I know it's really difficult to talk about this kind of stuff, but I want you to know that it's all right to talk about it. You might not be able to, and that's cool, but I want you to know that you can talk about it. And so often I'll hear this like, this like expression of relief because if you go right back to so many survivors experiences which is about this is our secret don't tell anybody etc etc i mean that's about the perpetrator that's the perpetrator installing guilt and shame Mm. and because nobody ever sort of challenges that to some extent that childhood guilt and shame grows up to be adult guilt and shame as we grow up if you're trying your hardest to ensure nobody ever finds out what happened to you because you do not want to feel that shame in its most toxic form, you will do everything possible. So, you know, drugs and alcohol were a great good friend of mine for a long time. And then we had a big fallout <laughs> and I'm really glad that we fell out and we don't speak anymore. So I'm pleased about that. But I think the root cause of so much drug use, of so much suicidal ideation, of so much self-harming, of so much poor health and not looking after poor health is rooted in the shame. Mm. And if we don't tackle the shame, we're going to continue to have extremely unhealthy, maladaptive men. Mm. And I think our brothers, Freddie, deserve better. Mm. You tackle the shame and the pain, as Gabor Mate says. Yes. I, I'm a big advocate of that. As a final question, then, mate. So, what has been your proudest achievement doing Survivors Manchester, and what has it taught you about yourself as well? My proudest achievement. God, there's been so many. So, there's the big ones. I was awarded an OBE in in the 2019 New Year's Honours list, which was incredible. You know. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a royalist. I'm not a republican. I don't actually. You're know. from Manchester. I wouldn't expect you to be either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just like I'm that. But going to Buckingham Palace and being awarded an OBE from the Queen herself was just mind blowing. That really was a real proud moment because my best friend in the whole wide world that I'll never have a friend like this was my granddad who sadly passed away in 1999. And I know that he was with me that day. I know that he would have been so proud. But I have to say, I think the 
biggest, proudest moments which continue to happen are those moments when I answer the phone in the office and, you know, hello, Survivors Manchester, Duncan speaking, can I help you? And you'll hear a voice at the end of the phone of someone just saying, hi, I've been given this number and I just wonder whether I can speak to somebody. And half an hour later, you've got a referral in front of you that you've taken on the phone and you send that off to my brilliant team in the operations department to process it. And then two days later, that individual's getting a, a phone call to get him booked in for an assessment. They're always my proudest moments because I know what that's like. I know right at the beginning of my journey, picking up the phone and ringing around and asking people for help and nobody could help me. And then that moment when somebody did, when that woman at Manchester Aid Crisis just gave me that time, you know, I think it started turning my heart from stone into something that was beating, that had flesh and blood in it. So every single week I get to have these proud moments. We've talked all about Survivors Manchester. I want to talk about your own mental health journey now, Dunk. So tell me first about early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Duncan we meet here? Okay, so early life was brilliant. I have really fond memories of growing up. So I grew up in a, effectively, I grew up in Coronation (laughs) Street as a reference, or actually rather, I grew up in Shameless (laughs) as a reference. So I grew up in in actually the part of Manchester where Shameless was filmed in Gorton, so in East Manchester. Everybody was your auntie or your uncle. Everybody's front doors were always open. You always walking into people's houses. We were playing in the back alleyways and it was just fun. I think what I now know actually is, I mean, I mentioned my granddad before. I now know that there is a history of mental health or poor mental health in my blood family with my granddad, who, when he came back from the war, as I I guessed in Mm. many men that came back from the second world war there was moments where we would certainly look at it now as being suicidal ideation massive ptsd there was a moment where that nightmares my granddad used to do that punching radiators in the night sleep sleep nightmares and stuff like that yeah yeah you know like i think what they would call it like shell shocked Mm. back then i remember this story that after he passed somebody told me about he was found sat by a river by the police by the local police and i'm talking like 19 god what would have been like 1948 9 1950 you know very 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 soon i suppose Mm. after he came back from the war so i already know that that's there so yeah so my early life i can remember being being okay being fun then there's the sexual abuse so the sexual abuse as i say was roundabout from about 11 to about 17. I can remember being at school, in high school, having moments of, would I class it as suicidal ideation? I, I think probably I would. I think I'd probably class it as very mild. So certainly nothing about any kind of planning. And probably 
not anything where I would be thinking about the idea of death, but definitely something about me not yes, being Yes, I was literally going to be what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just not wanting to the be The absence here. of yourself. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that is anything like, I don't want to be here as in dead. I just didn't want to be here. I don't know whether I wanted to be somewhere else. That's why I'm being a bit tentative about that. I also think that there's a whole mix in there about my sexuality. So the whole questioning around my sexuality, whether, you know, I'm a gay, I'm a bisexual, I'm a straight, which is all mixed into the sexual abuse it was experiencing. So I know that there was some elements of poor mental health there. But the bit where it really hit for me was... Round about 20, probably about 22 when it really mm. hit. So by that point, I'd come out and I, I decided that I identified as being gay. I'd been in a couple of relationships. I'd been in quite a violent relationship where I was beaten up and threatened and stuff by the boyfriend that I had at the time. He was much older than me. I had been you know i'm talking about early 90s as well i say it like it's a doom and gloom thing or my partying let's call it um, <laughs> reckless behavior <laughs> yeah yeah that was connected to directly to the abuse and arguably it was but let's put it into context this was the early 90s this was manchester Hacienda. You know, absolutely <laughs> My partying got way out of hand. And I know that's all definitely connected to my mental health. I worked at Granada's TV. So Granada Studios used to have this studio tours where you go around, you'd look around Coronation Street and all sorts of stuff. When I left there in 96, I'd worked there since about 92. I was on my fifth final written warning. And I don't mean like I'd had them and it had ended. I mean, like concurrently, there was like these final written warnings that were in parallel because I was so reckless. I would just be ringing my boss up and leaving a message on the answer machine saying, oh, I can't come in today. I'm feeling a bit poorly. Whilst there's this like booming music in the background because I'd gone to the payphone. I mean, nobody had mobile phones then, but I'd gone to the payphone and rang in sick because I was too busy partying. I was too busy off my face. I was too busy slumped in some corner. And I really recognize that as my self-medicating mm. way of treating depression. You know, it was absolutely depression that was driving a mm. lot of that. And then around about 90, about 95, 96, I had my first serious brush with suicidal ideation. I'm working out what it was I was going to do, where I was going to do it. I was going to make it look like an accident, all that kind of stuff. I think I'd wrote out a letter as well at one point. I know that's the first time I dipped my toe into therapy. And I think that was around about the first time I ever had any kind of antidepressants. Where I get to today is my relationship with my mental health is anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. And, you know, the receipt, you know, my body keeps the receipts. Babette Rothschild and Bressel van der Kolk, two great thinkers around trauma, particularly childhood trauma, talk about the body mm. keeps the score and your mind keeps the receipts of the things that you've done. And I think my scars and my marks across my body and 
you know, are, are the receipts of it. And, you know, they're not anything I'm ashamed of. I can't show everybody <laughs> all of them because some of them are in very private places. But I think all of those things are just the long history of my mental health. And, you know, in my office, I've got two boxes stuck to the wall. One of them is an empty box for my sertraline that I take every day. And one of them is an empty box for my propanolol that I take probably about every fortnight when I'm feeling that I just can't manage that anxiety. Mm. And I absolutely truly believe they are things that I will manage and manage really well for the rest of my life. And I'm Mm. okay with that. I'm really okay with that. You spoke there about your sexuality. And one really important thing I wanted to discuss with you, mate, is is sexuality and your perception towards it when it comes to the abuse. Because you said to me off air, yeah. was I abused because I was gay or do I identify as being gay because of what happened? The answer yeah. is all and neither. So can you unpack that for me and the listeners? Yeah. So going back to my argument around why we need to tackle gender norms, not toxic masculinity so to speak so it fits into all of that i have a belief that unless we tackle society's intrinsic homophobia Mm. we will never tackle male sexual violence victims of male sexual violence male victims of male sexual violence because i i have so there's about 1500 men that come through our service every single year i've been fortunate to go across the world and work with men in uganda in australia in new zealand america germany iceland and time and time and time again what comes up is something around a question where it is around Did you question your sexuality? And the simple version of it, Freddie, is am I gay? Am I not gay? And I think it's more complex than that. So I think every male survivor has in some way questioned, even if it's a fleeting question, has questioned something about did I enjoy it? It felt nice. It felt horrible. I hated it. What does that make mm. me? Why am I not a man? Am Depending I on the man? abuse and what all happened of those in the event. Things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, all together. So I think where I get then left with, because I like reflection and thinking, is I didn't think at the time anything about my sexuality. So I didn't sit there in a really reflective moment like that statue, like the thinker, like, oh, I think I might be gay. What I knew was that where I lived, there was these two guys, older men, who got absolutely hounded by the menfolk of the village with their burning pitchforks and, you know, kill the beast kind Mm. of stuff. I don't think I ever labelled them gay. I don't know whether I can honestly, hand on heart, say I knew what gay was. I knew what difference was. I knew that I didn't like the things that the majority of the lads liked, but I also had girlfriends as well. And I was also quite popular in school because I was the clown and I was funny and etc. So I knew there's something about difference. I knew that these guys got hounded because they were kind of together. And I suppose having that moment of recognising 
we're talking about sex we're talking about effectively two males having some kind of sexual contact and here was me as a boy having this sexual contact with a man didn't think of myself as being a boy and a man just thought about it as being two lads so some level some equalness meant that my brain kind of processed all of that stuff and went oh well they get hounded for doing that stuff together sex stuff and me and him are doing sex stuff so we must be the same so i was left with this question then about oh am i like them men and therefore that must mean that i'm gay i better not tell anybody because if i tell anybody i'll get hounded like those men are hounded and then you know just went with it and then years later actually properly coming out as an adult having this real reflection of yeah you know i identify as gay there is something then about well did the abuser notice something in me about difference and that was the thing that he was able to kind of grab and manipulate to get what he wanted in exactly the same way as the boy that's abused because he has no caregiver because he's been taken away from his family and put in care or the boy with a disability something about a vulnerability Mm. not that the child is vulnerable because i think all children are vulnerable but this momentary vulnerability that a perpetrator will like a shark sniffing blood they sniff a victim they were a potential victim absolutely from Mm. miles away as well and that you know i still get asked that question now and i never have an answer apart from exactly what you said none of it and all of it i am not gay because of it and i am gay because of it it is just part Mm. of me and maybe there's a slither of truth that there in some way is it's impacted my sexuality Mm. because even the heterosexual men that i speak to even my straight male friends who are survivors have a story when they get really Mm. honest about questioning about something that is semi consensual and what i mean by semi-consensual is maybe they have masturbated watching gay porn because there's just been this whole weird confusion stuff but actually the argument is maybe they would never have done that if they hadn't been abused so it's all it's all it's all all meshed it is it's messy it's meshed and we don't talk about it because you know, we go back to that gender mm. norms because we just keep getting told we shouldn't talk and about it. male sexuality is so stigmatised. No man really enjoys, well, as far as I'm aware, not a lot of men enjoy talking about their sexuality, really. It's it's just the exactly. thing that we don't speak about. Exactly. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk about how male victims who are sexually abused by men differ in regards to their sexuality. So have you seen any differences between how heterosexual men and gay men articulate or voice their experiences and also like you've said what commonalities do they have what brings them together what helps us unite so i think that there is the commonalities are definitely around this maleness and it's all connected to the guilt and shame but it's also connected to this this ridiculous notion of what 
men are supposed to be like this this gender norm regardless of whether somebody's gay or whether someone's straight or whether someone's bisexual or whatever however they are identifying their sexual orientation the commonality is something about the maleness because i think we all carry that with us we've all been told those stories about you know the brave soldier and the prince that rescues the princess and all that kind of stuff so there's real commonalities there the mental health stuff i think cuts through suicidal ideation cuts through cuts across there is a misnomer there's a real under there's a real misunderstanding in some way shape or form that because so often there's a thought that if you're gay if you're a gay or bisexual male and therefore you enjoy having sex or some kind of sexual contact with another man that in some way it shouldn't be as bad for gay men as it is for straight men because straight men would never normally have that and I just think I mean I just think it's so preposterous because that's tantamount to saying but that girl would grow up to have sex with men so therefore she must have enjoyed that in some way it is just as ridiculous but there is definitely something in it around perceptions so I often think that there is there's another level of complex anger about violation so the heterosexual males that have been abused by a male there's often something that they find really difficult to articulate, which is so a common one, like where somebody has been forced to perform oral sex on the perpetrator. That isn't something that should have ever been my experience. What I mean, like one's experience. So a heterosexual male would never have oral sex with a male something's happened which would never have been my experience if this wouldn't have been if i wouldn't have been abused whereas with gay males there's a different type of i think it's in the same category but there's a different type of anger because effectively their first experience Mm. of something that they may do consensually has been tarnished so it's in the same category, but it comes from it from different angles. Yeah, Does that 100%. make sense? No, I definitely get it. I definitely get it. And I think there's also something about that tarnished sex, which again is in, if you drew a Venn diagram, it fit, it's in both categories, whether whether somebody's identifies as heterosexual or somebody identifies as bisexual or gay, that sex is sort of a bit ruined. So it's left a really dirty stain on what should be a really great thing. Sex should be really brilliant. And for heterosexual men and gay and bisexual men equally, it's been tarnished, but in a very, very different Mm. way. Because we're beginning to now talk about male victims of female perpetration, and I've been involved in a lot of work with Dr. Siobhan Weir at Lancaster University, and we did the first study on this, really. Siobhan did some brilliant work, and we're uh, in the middle of writing an academic paper on this. So because we're beginning to really talk about that, I'm noticing more and more and more men stepping forward, 
to talk about that as their experience, whether singular, so whether the perpetrator was female or there was a female at some point in their life where there's been a, they've had to have sex, they've felt compelled to have sex. Usually something around the babysitter. Yeah, I've had, and, I've had people, I've got guests on that. Person. I've had guests on it who've talked about this as well. Yeah, And I think we need to begin to better understand mm. that as well. Because I know particular, you know, I can think of a couple of clients over the years where they've talked about the difficulty of sex with their wives or their girlfriends because there's certain things that she might want them to do, which they absolutely get triggered by because that was the thing that the perpetrator, the babysitter wanted mm. them to do. So I think we don't understand that enough yet. And we've got to kind of mm. unpack that. One thing you were also keen to talk about, mate, was the relationship between class and social class and your story of abuse and your story of sexuality. So unpack that for me. Why did you want to talk about class particularly? You hear people talk a lot now about, you know, adverse childhood experiences ACs. or ACEs. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's a lot of that. And I think, you know, they're really important to talk about. I think, you know, there's, there's a bit of me that says to everybody, air with caution, just be a bit careful that we don't, we don't start thinking about ACEs as being predictors because they're absolutely not. But one of the things that I think comes up time and time again or rather isn't thought about as properly as we should talk about it, is something around class. So something around this, I don't know, like maybe it's society's view of the way, and I do think there's a level of victim blaming mixed in with it somewhere, which is those from lower socioeconomic class, you know, working class people, you know, like me and my growing up, where there's this kind of like... Not so overtly, oh, well, quite clearly, the kids weren't being looked after and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas much more upper class, you know, middle to upper class people, the abuse experience is often thought about the thing that happens by the teachers or outside of the family. And I often think there's a level of shame and I don't necessarily know this person because my experience of abuse happened outside of the family but when I've worked with individuals where abuse happened in the family and they are from working class backgrounds where there's been a level of or there's been a level of kind of poverty the bread line there's another bit of shame which is something about just not being good mm. enough because the world is already looking at them in a particular way in a lower so it will like sense. reinforce the stereotype it will reinforce that if they yeah it. yeah something about like and i've heard this so many times the abuser might have been somebody's father but they're still their father and i often think like <sighs> I'm not one for the hierarchy of need and high, sorry, hierarchy of pain. You know, abuse is abuse is abuse. You know, you and I share something, Freddie, that nobody will ever be able to take us away from us. And I'm delighted about no one being able to take it away from us because, you know, we, we shared the brotherhood of being survivors. And I do genuinely believe in that. So I don't ever want anyone to think, well, mine is worse than yours or yours is worse than mine, et cetera, et cetera. But I do sometimes think how much more difficult how much more of a struggle must it be to have to navigate your way through an experience where 
the safety of mm, your own home was family yeah it's horrific i can't even imagine where yeah where you you were already ridiculed and you were already thought about in a particular way because of your class because of how further down on the pecking order that you were supposed to be so i think you know we've really got to understand that we've got to put the experience of abuse into the context of the class and and the environment that people mm. grew up in before we reflect on your mental health journey dunk i want to talk about representation because you've worked on a few television shows you've advised a few soaps about storylines which cover sexual abuse so how fulfilling has that been and why is it important for the wider public to see these stories not just of female sexual abuse but of male sexual abuse by women or by men yeah oh god it's been incredible and you know i'm currently as we record this currently doing some work with eastenders on um the aid aiden and max i forgot the character's names ben mitchell ben mitchell i'm so used to talking to the actor and making sure that i don't use the character name um, that when it's the other way around, I struggle. <laughs> ben Mitchell has been raped by Lewis in EastEnders. That's the fifth or sixth storyline that I've been involved with. Started with Hollyoaks. I've done two Hollyoaks big stories. I've done two, three big stories on Coronation Street. This is the first big one on EastEnders. Been involved with a number of theatre productions. We've literally recently just redone a theatre production as a short film that will be going out. I'm involved in another play called The MP, Anti-Mandate and Me, which is about coercion control. All of them are about representation. I could wax lyrical about this for forever, but for me, to sum it all up, when we did the Hollyoaks storyline originally with James Sutton, who plays John Paul, and the storyline was... John Paul's a teacher was going to be raped by a pupil. And it was the first time that this has, you know, there'd ever been a sexual violence storyline against males pre-watershed. So it went out at half six till seven. And, you know, we worked so hard on it. And James and Keith, James who plays John Paul and Keith who played the perpetrator, really dug down deep. You know, James became a really good friend of mine and uh, you know he's one of our ambassadors and I remember being on the Matthew Wright show on Channel 5 me and James had gone to do a lot of press we were stood in Euston station and we were just chatting and then he goes off to his train I get on my train and I open my laptop and I'm literally emailing one of my colleagues about the fact that it would be sudden use and station and we were in the middle of chatting and people coming up to him asking for his autograph and he just have to get used to that with him whenever you're around him an email came through at this point about an hour after coming off live on it like from live tv and an email came through from a gentleman who was 78 and he'd been watching the matthew wright show which is his thing that he did normally while he's having his breakfast and saw us speaking. I'd done a couple of pieces right down to camera. So people were calling in and I'd spoken to them live on air. And he said he'd never seen anybody speak like that before. And he was going to now go down to, going to drive down about an hour down to his daughter, his adult daughter, to apologise to her to say, I'm so sorry that I was not able to be your dad. I was dealing with some stuff because I was abused as a kid and he'd never told anybody. And he said, you've given me my freedom. 
and that was like this like uh, moment where I realized how important it is to do this how important it is for people to see themselves on telly or to be able to project themselves onto characters on telly and the Coronation Street story you know when David Platt was raped Ryan who was the actor who played the rapist him and I ended up having to be interviewed by ITN News you know in this one moment where I was stood on Coronation Street with my earpiece in looking down the camera being interviewed live on ITN News you know the main news headlines about this story of David Platt rape and the impact and the impact had been that we'd seen a 1700% increase in calls to the male helpline within 72 hours just like like mind well and truly blown and you know bringing it right up to day with EastEnders at the moment a few weeks ago it was the great Manchester 10k run and um, a group of lads who use our service had decided that they wanted to run the 10k run to raise some money for Survivors Manchester and Aidan O'Callaghan the actor who plays Lewis the rapist asked if he could run with them and it was uh, incredible they all ran together with their Survivors Manchester tops on, really being visible, and they were handing out cards. And 12, 24 hours later, there was an individual ringing the helpline asking if he could be referred because he was watching the Great Manchester run and he heard on the announcement it was EastEnders actor Aidan O'Callaghan's in the crowd running for Survivors Manchester, got given a card. And at that moment, he decided that he needed to do something about his experience. So 24 hours later, after what is it really a fun run, although 10K isn't fun for me, but a run. And we have an individual because he saw this actor, you know, and you can easily go, oh, it's just a, a character. But this person identified that if this actor can be so proud about being able to tell these stories, that he can be proud enough to go and tell his I always think there's something about it's in the shadows and it's in the silence where you and I got hurt in the light and in the sound is where we do our healing let's reflect then on your mental health journey dunk so how have all these experiences shaped you in the person you are today what they taught you about yourself and if you could go back as well and talk to that 11-year-old Duncan who was being sexually abused or the Duncan in his mid-20s who was re-narrating and repackaging that story or mm. the Duncan who was about mm. to start Survivors Manchester, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? What I would say to him is strapping kid, it's going to be a bloody rocky ride. I would certainly say don't do anything different because I wouldn't. I've had some really horrible times, but they've really taught me. I'd say you're going to trust the wrong people and sometimes not trust the right people. I'd say never be afraid of medication. Always know that it's there to help. I'd say if you're going to swallow a pill, make sure it's only from a doctor. (laughs) That would certainly be. That would certainly be a message that I would want to tell him. 
because that funky looking man at the Hacienda is not a doctor. <laughs> you know, I think that my mental health journey has taught me something about vulnerability. I've been terrified over the years of being vulnerable because vulnerability was the state that I was in, or rather being vulnerable was the state that I was in when I was being abused. So I had this understanding that if I was going to be vulnerable, then that would mean that I'd be open to abuse. And actually, that's not true. My vulnerability is my strength, my honesty, my transparency. I've got to stay in those positions. My mental health, my poor mental health has taught me, or rather, I can reflect back and I can think about the times when my mental health has been really poor. It's the times where I have not been true to myself. I've not been honest with myself. I've not shown my vulnerability. I've tried that mask and it just doesn't work. My mental health has also given me the ability to love in a way that I have didn't even think was possible. I often talk about my family, my logical family. Logical because it makes sense. We have biological families and we have logical families and I love my logical family. I have three brothers who, I mean, I love with all of my heart. I have my sisters who, again, I love with all my heart. Every single day I will speak to one of my friends, one of my logical family members and at the end of every call, I'll always tell them I love them. My brother is back off. He's been on, he works on the oil rigs and he's back on shore. And, you know, I absolutely cannot wait to see him. The first thing I'll do is when I see him, I give him a big hug and a kiss and I don't let go for about 10 seconds. I've just got to be there. I'm, I'm going to be the best man of one of my new brothers in America. And I haven't seen him since in the flesh since the beginning of the pandemic it's my mental health teaches me that I say this knowing that some people will not like me saying it but I like my level of crazy (laughs) I'm really comfortable with it I like being a little bit different and what I mean by that is non-conforming because it's all right it's just okay and we'll get through it together we have come to our final topic of conversation dunk and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests it is a general natter and chit chat about mental health so firstly how is your mental health mate really good at the moment really good Duncan is brought to you today by 50 milligrams of sertraline and 20 milligrams of propanolol this morning. So, yeah, it's Mm. good. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical, but they were actually in your mind? Oh, that's a really good question. I would have to say probably 20, about 28 when I really got into, when I was trained to be a therapist. I think I knew beforehand, but I think I really understood it at a level that I never thought Mm. possible. So around about 28. And can you tell me then also about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a big burden or weight even lifted off your shoulders? 
Or on the other hand, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? First time I ever had a conversation about mental health properly that I can remember was talking to my best friend, talking to Julian and me talking about how I didn't feel too good. And I think I might have even said to him at that point that I'd felt like hurting myself. And and he said, you should go and speak to somebody. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And he was like, oh, well, because when I did it and he had this moment where I just thought, what do you mean when you did it? I had no idea whatsoever that he'd been to see a therapist. And in him being visible about that, I then took myself off to do the same thing. And I remember it being the most difficult thing. I genuinely mean this. And I've never admitted this before. I think the first three sessions of my very, very first counselling session, I lied all the way through them. I was not honest in the slightest. I think the only honest thing I said was my name. (laughs) That's not too dissimilar from mine, actually, because it took me four of the first six sessions or seven sessions I did to actually say I've been bullied outright. So I see similar experiences there, mate. I see similar commonalities. What triggers then do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be a sound, it could be a social environment, a particular book or play, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Oh God, absolutely not figured them all out yet. Smells are a big thing for me. And I I discover those on a regular basis. You know, when you go to Mm -hmm. the swim bath, that chlorine smells for ages. Yep, absolutely. And it's not just chlorine, it's everything that's with it. That smell can tip me over the edge. And if I walk into a toilet in a shop or whatever, and I smell that smell, I have to get out. And I know that's a trigger. And I know that's a trigger for my really poor mental health. Another big, big, big trigger for my mental health. And the previous one, the chlorine smell goes back to... My earliest experiences of being sexually abused always happened right. in the toilet. That's where he always took me. So I know it's directly linked to that. The other thing for me is about power. So I have no problem with power, with people having power. I have a problem with the misuse mm. of power. So when somebody affronts me and just automatically tries to assert their power over me, I mean, that like is rag to a ball, red rag to a ball, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and I can, I can have, you know, I can lose a day through that, and I'm still, I'm still working a lot on really simply someone just being behind mm. me. Even when I did that, it, so even when I put my hand over my shoulder to <laughs> indicate to you on camera <laughs> that there, yeah, I can feel it and like I get mm. a bit, ooh. That's been a trigger, Freddie, that comes and goes that. And it is back at the moment and I need to, I need to okay. work on it. I need to work on it. And then it. conversely then, mate, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? And maybe also which ones that you've tried but haven't? So everybody talks about mental health and exercise and all that kind of stuff. Exercise seems to be the only fad that's ever passed me by. Everything else I've been on. (laughs) I try going to the gym. I try doing all that. And quite frankly, I just don't like it. (laughs) I just think they're places that are just full of people that I just would not want to spend any time with, quite frankly. And I say that with my brother being a professional boxer who trains all the time, 
my other brother being ex-military who trains all the time. The gym thing has never worked for me. But I'll tell you what, and I know people say this, like, it always sounds a bit wanky to me about, oh, get involved in nature. I just think, oh, get lost. But during the lockdown, you know, the first lockdown when we were basically told we were allowed to go out for half Mm. an hour, I mean, I wasn't locked down. I worked all the way through and I was working in prisons as well. So I was spending a lot of time in confined environments. So I just used to go out, me and my husband just used to go out for a walk, literally around the block. And it was dead quiet and nobody was around. And I really enjoyed it. And I think I've always enjoyed walking. So for me, what's good is walking. I don't smoke anymore. I don't use drugs. I don't really drink. But if something stressed me out, I'll just go for a walk around the block. And music as well. I've got back into buying oh, vinyl and just playing. I'm a CD records. collector, mate. I can like, never do vinyl. It was too expensive. I wanted to buy it. Oh, I think I trialed it once. I was like, oh, I want to really buy this 12 inch from uh, Evelyn Champagne King or something from 1978. And it, oh, and it was it was, it was like 40 quid. And I was like, I'll just buy the yeah. album. <laughs> better money (laughs) yeah well i've literally i've just bought i went to a record fair yesterday and i've just picked up a promotional copy of frank ocean frank ocean's blonde which is a phenomenal Mm. album and then the week before i picked up for like 50 quid the um live from syracuse the prince and new power revolution that's a rare album mate that's a rare album yeah i've never heard sound like it so i could literally just listen to that so yeah Mm. music and anything that sort of entertainment so theater cinema where i can just sit down i can lose escapism yeah yeah what is the best book as well then mate or as i call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health related but it doesn't exclusively have Mm -hmm. to be well there's two there's a professional book that is, it really is probably the only real book that I read during my professional training, which is called Forms of Feeling by Dr. Robert Hobson. I really struggled with an aspect of my training with psychodynamic psychotherapy. And one of my lecturers said, read this, and it changed my life. So that definitely, anybody trained to be a therapist, anybody interested in that kind of stuff, Forms of Feeling by Dr. Robert Hobson. That was the book. The one that really did change my life and really does help with my mental health, and I think about it a lot, and I I will tap into it every so often, these chapters that I'll just go and read, is Armstead Mopin's Tales of the Sitter, or the series Tales of the Sitter, which is a story of a group of, misfits who become a logical family in the mid 70s in san francisco and the whole stories continue over nine or ten books now and and that they have been my bible they have been the things that i go to because i just adore those characters it just reminds me Mm. of connection and as a final question mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if, most importantly, they want to do it. This, Freda, I think what you're doing is phenomenal and thank you for doing what you're doing. We've just got to have conversations, conversations that are difficult sometimes. I think we've got to have far more representation 
I think we've got to stop talking about toxic masculinity and start talking about toxic gender norms. I think what we've got to do is put down this ridiculous notion of having debates around the existence of people, you know, because nobody's illegal. You know, we should never be talking about illegal people. I think we've got to listen more. So just because an experience doesn't affect you doesn't mean that we can negate other people's experiences. I have no idea what it's like to suffer racism every single day. So as a white man to be saying to a black man, well, it's not like that really, is it? Or, oh God, you're just talking about something again. I think we've got to stop that. And what we've got to do is we've got to accept experience because we all have them. And I think if we got a little bit kinder in those ways and we got a little bit more having a, a little bit more ability to not try and keep proving people wrong how you can prove somebody wrong when all they're talking about is their experience is beyond me because it's their experience then i think more people will step forward if they feel like mm. they want to and on that note duncan craig obe thank you so much for coming on the just checking podcast and talking to me mate thank you well that's all we've got time for on this episode of the just checking in podcast i want to say a massive thank you to duncan for being my special guest for this episode for telling his story of sexual abuse and the absolutely incredible work that he is doing with survivors manchester i'll put some links to where you can find out more about them and follow duncan on social media in the show notes if you do live in manchester and you want our listeners and you need support please go to survivors manchester i'm sure they'll be able to help you as always thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode if you've liked what you've heard give it a share on social media tell your friends or work colleagues about it please write us a review or give us a rating on apple Podcasts if you want to help us out with those algorithms if you like what we're doing here at vent please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash events help uk if you don't want to do that you can visit our gofundme the link to that is on all of our channels we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent. <laughs>